Chapter forty eight, part one of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two, by Moncure Conway. Chapter forty eight, part one. In October 1876 we went to reside in Hamlet House, Hammersmith. It was an old, but not ancient, mansion, built about a hundred years before. It was surrounded by nearly three acres of ground with stately trees, classic statues amid them, large lawn in front, rose-garden at the back, and behind that fruit-trees, of which some were of rare excellence. The lease made out for this old homestead interested me a good deal not only because I had to pay for it, twenty guineas, I think, but because of the number of engagements I had to make, such as taking care of bridges and watercourses. As these serious-looking contracts referred to things that had been detached from the estate for a century, I had no fear of signing them. But when the lawyer read out that I was to take care of the deadlocks, I demanded, What is a deadlock? Neither he nor my landlord could answer, and there being no dictionary in the room one had to be sent for. There had not been a deadlock in Hamlet House since about sixty years before. It was used as a school for young ladies, who, after their retirement at night, were secured by those external bolts. Although the doors had many times been repainted, I could see near the top a faint indication of where the deadlock had been. Had everything that had disappeared from Hamlet House and grounds disappeared also from the lease, this could have required only two or three pages. But how, then, could the lawyer get his guineas? My lease rested on a great conservative principle. Although church rates had been abolished by Parliament, the collector for Kensington Parish called with a bill of seven and sixpence for the church. When I expressed my astonishment, and said I could not pay such a tax, he told me that I could not be compelled, but that the agreement to pay it had always continued in the lease of Hamlet House. The lease being brought out, I found that I had signed an agreement to pay the usual charges and taxes. Perhaps I should have refused to pay an implicit tax of this kind. But during my three years at Hamlet House I paid this annual seven and sixpence. I believe the tenant of Hamlet House had some privilege in the selection of a pew in Kensington Church, which, however, I never entered except once for a wedding. In 1878 Sir Charles Dyke requested me to act as one of his committee in Hammersmith, and although I never voted in England, and always retained my American citizenship, I complied with the request. We had long been in friendly relations with Sir Charles and Lady Dyke. This first Lady Dyke was spiritual and charming. She was appreciative of all public questions without giving herself up to any cause. Sir Charles appeared to be the coming statesman. He had in 1878 especially pleased me by a two-hours speech in Hammersmith, in which he alluded to the recent encroachments by royal prerogative. It was Gladstone who revived royal prerogative to abolish army purchase, a very small evil compared with the precedent set by that revival. My only function as a committeeman was to dine occasionally with Sir Charles, and listen to the talk of my colleagues. Our chairman was Mr. Beale, our excellent neighbour, whose two pretty daughters used to assist in our tableaux and theatricals at South Place Chapel for we had such amusements there, 
and actor Mansfield in his youth managed many a pretty performance at South Place. When Beale heard that I had taken Hamlet House, he said humorously, "'You are a bold man.' To my delight I heard that there had been a suspicion of its being haunted, but I could find no such story about the house, and concluded that the name Hamlet on the porter's lodge had suggested the ghost. The name was that of the famous old jeweller who built the house. But Hamlet House had its legend. The old jeweller had been rich, but was ruined by building the Adelphi Theatre. His family consisted of one daughter, a beauty for whom Hamlet had made the finest necklace in England. She was betrothed to a lord. While the bankruptcy of Hamlet was known to but few, and unknown to his daughter, he returned from the city one afternoon with two gentlemen and strolled with them in the garden. Then he entered the house and told his daughter he wished to show some gentleman her necklace. She brought it, and never saw it again. Her noble fiancé having withdrawn from the engagement, Miss Hamlet made her living by school-teaching. Among the happy memories connected with Hamlet House is the coming on a sweet June day in 1877 of the venerable William Lloyd Garrison and his son Francis. It was his last day in England, and we invited to luncheon some of the younger generation to whom it would be a cherished memory to have known the great liberator. He was most gracious and gave us anecdote after anecdote concerning his early struggles and his comrades. He charmed us all, and inspired us with hopefulness for the future of the southern states and the negroes. He spoke with delight of the meetings he had attended in London, and of the eloquent women who spoke at them, and smiled at the early days in which he had been a Pharisee of the Pharisees, with regard to the participation of women in public meetings. Garrison was a beautiful figure walking through the old garden with the young people clustering around him. There was a radiance about his almost snow-white head like a halo. At the very time that Garrison was drawing around him his circle of admirers, General Grant was being lionized in a very deliberate way. I attended assemblies now for one and next for the other. The man who sowed the seed of emancipation, and the man who, having grown grey without ever feeling a throb of sympathy for the slave, yet reaped the official and pecuniary harvest had no apparent relation to each other. I first met ex-President Grant at a grand dinner at the Grosvenor Hotel given him by John Russell Young, then representing the New York Herald in London. I had some conversation with the ex-President, and he talked mostly of his reception by the Queen the day before. While he was at Windsor Castle a cablegram arrived from Pennsylvania, he did not say by whom sent, addressed to the Queen, thanking her for her reception of him, the news of which must have travelled very swiftly for the response to be returned before the reception was over. He also spoke of the agreeable dinner given him at Marlborough House by the Prince of Wales. It was easy to perceive that the reception given Grant in London had no heart in it. The official people wished to please the Americans, and all was properly done. But Grant's administrations were believed to have been marked by corruption and the removal of Motley, known to have hastened his death, was ascribed to petty vengeance against Sumner. The general committed a sad mistake at the formal reception given him by the Duke of Devonshire. On this occasion the nobility wore their orders. The ex-president appeared decorated in just the same way, that is, with a flaming red ribbon across his breast from shoulder to waist, and a large gold badge. General Badeau wore something smaller of the same kind. 
There were few Americans present, but we were shocked. I was embarrassed by the inquiries made to me by Englishmen present, whether there were orders and decorations of that kind in America. Of course, I could give no explanation. My friend G. W. Smalley, if I remember rightly, told me that the gold medal was engraved with a list of Grant's victories. This incident excited ridicule, and some Americans managed to let the general understand that this bit of imitation had changed the homage of the nobility to an ex-president into an ex-president's genuflection before them. At any rate, the riband was laid aside later in the evening and not worn again in London. It was a great delight to find ourselves neighbors of the composer Edward Danrether. We remembered him as a boy in Cincinnati playing the organ in our Unitarian church with wonderful skill. Many a time I had watched from the pulpit his little head beyond the screen at the other end of the room, admiring his voluntaries. After leaving Cincinnati, 1862, we never heard of him until we found him in London in the circle of artistic poets whom we well knew. He had married a Greek lady and had fixed his abode at Bayswater, in the house where the poet John Sterling lived. Not far from it lived the poet's son Edward, an artist, and his two sisters, both of stately beauty. The Danrother house was old and full of quaint rooms and halls, and the composer had added a concert room. The walls were covered with Morris papers, the design lemons and pomegranates, and hung with pictures by Burne Jones in his school. The furniture was antique, a fine feature being an architectural stove towering to the ceiling. Amid this environment we used to listen to the compositions in which Danrother had interpreted poems of his friends William Morris and Dante Rossetti before they were published. There were among his friends ladies and gentlemen enough able to sing these ballads with sympathetic skill. There was in all this poetry and in the music a certain melancholy. Those present were persons in good circumstances, the ladies refined and fair, most of the gentlemen distinguished in art or in letters. In these charming societies, for there were similar circles in several other houses, I was reminded always of the garden pictured by an incomparable Boccaccio outside Florence, where ladies and gentlemen found refuge from the plague in Florence. Their refuge was in the realm of the imagination, and the refuge of these from the coarseness and hardness and despair of London was also in that realm. But they could not attain the joyous freedom of the Italian genius. When superstitions have vanished, hell became a vulgar notion, and the god of wrath forgotten, the earthly paradise begins to rise, but with painful revelations of actual thorns wounding the poor and suffering. Again and again have I stood in Hyde Park with the humble crowd listening to William Morris, while carriages of the wealthy rolled past. He too might have enjoyed his carriage instead of trying to engrave on those hearts his transcendent sociology and to animate them with visions of reform beautiful as the windows he stained for churches. Out there on the grass a rude bench for his pulpit, rough people for his audience, William Morris raged against himself as one of the class of their non-producing oppressors. If I were in the situation of most of you I should take to hard drinking. I was a listener solely from interest in the man, having no faith in any socialism except that poor people should unite in communal means for physical comfort, in order that mental individuality may increase. William Morris impressed me then as a noble but still more a pathetic figure. As I look back on the scene it appears to me tragical. 
for I believe his premature death was in part due to disillusion. I think of him now as one who spoke to the multitudes in an unknown tongue, as if Prospero had called up his exquisite mask for a company of comparative calibans. Meanwhile, those who really understood as well as loved him were forming their oasis to make life beautiful in the brief interval of existence. The Prometheus that brought their fire had consumed faith in the future life, and grim, remorseless London forbade any faith in a coming heaven on earth. So they gathered together in their affectionate circles. Among these assemblies at the Danruthers are associated in my memory with the tender melancholy of Morse's ballads, as Danruther translated his thoughts into sound. Across the graves of some who were guests in that circle I still bear the voices gone silent of two, who sang a duet from the earthly paradise. In the white-flowered hawthorn brake, Love be merry for my sake. Twine the blossoms in my hair, Kiss me where I am most fair, Kiss me, love, For who knoweth what thing cometh after death? There were gala evenings at the Danruthers when Wagner visited London, 1877. Ferdinand Preger, Wagner's earliest friend, persuaded him to conduct concerts of his operatic music in Albert Hall, despite his protests that it was against his principles to detach his music from dramatic action and scenery. Wagner brought Frau Materna with him, the wonderful voice which determined various tours de force in his operas. Before the concerts began, Wagner was entertained by the Danruthers, the guests being not only musical artists, but painters and writers. G. H. Lewes and his wife were present, and I remember a display of enthusiasm by George Eliot. Wagner performed on the piano a piece just composed, unknown, I believe, to his nearest friends. It was a song, and in it were one or two passages that one might suppose beyond the compass of any voice but Materna mastered them, one after the other, the composer's face reddening with excitement until the last note sounded, when he leaped up and seized the hands of the singer. Then George Eliot moved quickly forward to shake hands with her, though whether Materna was aware of the distinction of the woman who congratulated her was doubtful. For George Eliot, who could probably not have been drawn into so large a company by any less attraction than Wagner, had sat in her usual reserve, until this brilliant performance by Materna. This German lady was handsome, gracious, and entirely free from vanity or any airs. By taking Hamlet House we were enabled to supply the South Place congregation with what it had never enjoyed in its long history, a social centre, and to entertain our many friends coming from America. For London was the great place to see Americans, and we welcomed in those years Higginson, John Fisk, Frothingham, Robert Collier, Baylord Taylor and his wife, Eugene Schuyler, Honorable Alfonso Taft and his family, John Jay, Cyrus Field, and many another. In 1879 Bedford Park, with its artistic homes and its circle of literary men and artists, charmed us away even from beautiful Hamlet House. We built there a pretty Queen Anne house, despite my friend Herbert Spencer's wonder that a progressive should go far back in the matter of architecture. Our Inglewood, for I had gone back to my earliest remembered home in Virginia for a name, had a pretty garden, and although it was not large enough for the lawn gaieties of Hamlet House, 
our inglewood mondays had the attraction of being attended by the artists and literary people whose residence made bedford park a village such as rabelais dreamed of in Telem. ah the happiness of those years at bedford park the walks and talks with james syme and john todhunter our choice circle of calumets passing sunday evenings in such genuine conversation as the presence of syme and todhunter dr gordon hogg g h orpen york powell fox bourne and jonathan carr assured the exhibitions at our art school the university extension lectures from sir martin conway the discussions at the village club for both ladies and gentlemen the theatricals tableau vivant masquerade these charms for the evenings of days passed in toil made bedford park for my wife and myself the ideal place to which we always looked back with a wonder that any ties could ever have drawn us away from it sir martin conway and i had met at times in cambridge as a youth distinguished for his knowledge of the history of art and the curator of prints not yet dreaming of the himalayan heights on which he wrote his grand books and climbed to his title he was lovable and brilliant and i was sorry i could not make out some kinship i would have liked to meet one of the english branch of our virginia race and heard with interest that captain conway had come with his family to reside near us but during my absence from home my wife returning from a walk found the cook at the door in violent altercation with two officers and holding on with her hands to some valuables they were trying to seize she heard the cook cry my mistress always pays her debts as she goes she don't know anything to anybody the officers said to my wife isn't this the house of captain conway on being told where the house was the officers apologized and told my wife that the so-called captain was a fugitive from accumulated debts and a warrant was issued to seize the furniture we afterwards learned that his name was not conway at all but that he was a scotchman with high connections this was the only disagreeable incident in our residence at bedford park a famous ballad of bedford park appeared in the st james gazette december seventeenth eighteen eighty one in which jonathan t carr founder of the village and norman shaw the architect consult about building stores and a church and in this connection the unknown minstrel made free with my name a church likewise j t replies says shaw i'll build a church yet sore i fear the esthetes here will leave it in the lurch religion pious carr rejoined is moncure conway's view is not devoid of interest although it be not true then let us build a house for her wherein she may abide and those who choose may visit her the rest may stay outside but lest the latter should repine a tennis ground we'll make where they on sunday afternoons may recreation take as a matter of fact the tennis play went on through the sunday forenoon as well as the afternoon the clergyman of the church did not disapprove of sunday tennis but it thinned his congregation and he prepared a proposal that it should be discontinued between ten and one o'clock to this he wished to get signatures and first of all brought it to me and my wife from fear that religious discord might arise in the harmonious village and sunday recreations be stopped altogether my wife and i signed the proposal but no other signature could the clergyman get the young people even some that supported the church protested that sunday was the only day when husbands and brothers were not at business and there were not enough afternoon hours to accommodate them all 
so we too the most notorious heretics in bedford park alone signed the clergyman's sunday petition end of chapter forty eight part one